Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, three Chinese astronauts near the end of their six-month mission aboard the China Space Station, while in America, four private astronauts are planning to go on a trip to the International Space Station. And NASA is to order a new human lunar landing spacecraft to supplement the SpaceX Starship that will be used for the first Artemis landing. And John Englander, the Executive Director of the Caribbean Centre for Rising Seas, discusses sea level rise and flooding. First up, we have Spatio News. On uh, Saturday morning at 2.17, the Crew Dragon Endeavour spaceship is due to be launched into orbit from the Kennedy Space Centre in Florida by a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. Now, this is a private crew mission to the International Space Station, and it's operated by the Axiom Space Company. Aboard will be former NASA astronaut Michael Lopez Alegria, Israeli Eitan Stibb, and United States citizen Mark Pathy. The mission is scheduled to last 10 days, of which eight will be docked to the space station, some 400 kilometers above the Earth. Meanwhile, three astronauts aboard the International Space Station are nearing the end of their six month mission. Here is a report from CGTN about that mission. China's Shenzhou 13 crew are preparing for their return to Earth, which is planned for mid-April. And the news follows Tianzhou 2's recent separation from the CSS. And on October 16, 2021, the Shenzhou 13 mission sent three Taikonauts to CSS for a six-month stay and the longest duration in the history of China's manned space program. During their stay, the team partook a number of projects and experiments along with live science lectures for school children. And their main focus now is to get ready for their trip back to Earth. Uh, the major work that needs to be done before the Shenzhou 13 crew returns to Earth are to finish the inventory and transferal of goods, to thoroughly clean and complete maintenance on the carbon, to prevent the growth of any microorganisms, to finish packing items that are going back to Earth, and to set up the vessel's unmanned flight mode. In addition to these things, the crew must exercise to strengthen their bodies and get them used to gravity once they are back here on Earth. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. On April the 4th, the Artemis One team tried to load liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen into the Space Launch System rocket at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. They were prevented from completing the task by a number of problems. First, there was a temperature limit issue for the liquid oxygen. After a delay of several hours, the tank was filled to 50%. Then there was a problem in the core stage's hydrogen vent valve. The valve was found to be physically <laughs> closed, which meant that it could not be remotely commanded open. Well, this is now being corrected by the ground crew. There were also delays in getting gaseous nitrogen supply up and running. And also, fans did not perform as expected. Well, there'll soon be another attempt to fully fuel the 100-metre-tall rocket at the Kennedy Space Centre. Last week, there was a briefing on the 
Sustaining Lunar Development Project, which is to uh, build more landers for humans on the moon. We'll take you there now. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. My name is Jackie McGinnis, and I'm NASA's press secretary. Thank you for joining us. NASA continues along the path toward long-term human exploration of the moon for the first time in history. And in support of our goals at the moon, we're here today to announce the upcoming Sustaining Lunar Development Procurement. I'm joined by several members of NASA's leadership team who will provide additional background about the upcoming RFP and answer any questions you all may have. Today you'll hear from NASA Administrator Bill Nelson, Jim Free, Associate Administrator for NASA's Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, Lisa Watson-Morgan, Program Manager of NASA's Human Landing System Program, and other NASA experts who will be available to answer your questions. We'll have some brief remarks from our speakers. So to get us started, I'd like to welcome Administrator Bill Nelson. Hi, everybody. Uh, it was about a year ago that NASA had its first competition selected SpaceX to continue the development of the first commercial human lander. And that lander is going to safely carry the next two American astronauts to the lunar surface. I've spoken recently to Gwen Shotwell at SpaceX, and our teams are making good progress on the demonstration HLS award which will land the first Americans on the moon in over a half a century. That landing will be the first. And from there, we expect approximately one human landing per year over a decade or so. And these are not isolated missions. Each is going to build on the past progress going to incredible the discovery and the understanding that we are seeking in what it takes to live in deep space and all of that is of course in preparation for us then to have the first human mission to Mars late in the 2030s or 2040. Uh, now all of this boils down to that we think, and so does the Congress, that competition leads to better, more reliable outcomes. It benefits everybody. It benefits NASA. It benefits the American people. Uh, it is obvious the benefits of competition. And so today's announcement is what I said to Congress. I promised competition, so here it is. Under this new plan, this sustaining lunar development opportunity, NASA is asking American companies to propose lander concepts capable of transporting astronauts to and from lunar orbit to the surface of the moon for missions beyond the third Artemis. Third Artemis is the first demonstration landing uh, on the surface of the moon. Uh, these new landers are going to be built and operated according to NASA's sustaining lunar lander requirements. And those capabilities include docking with the orbiting gateway station for crew transfer, increased crew capacity, and transporting more mass for such things as science and exploration on the lunar surface. And so competition is the key to our success. It's going to help ensure that we have the technical capabilities to carry out the mission. And additional landers will help increase the cadence of the missions at which we are able to land astronauts on the surface of the moon. I've heard from several members of Congress over the past year 
as well as I've heard from them also in the committee meetings that I've testified to. Uh, and they are committed to ensuring that we have more than one lander to choose for future missions. We're expecting to have both Congress support and that of the Biden administration, and we're expecting to get this competition started in the fiscal year 23 budget. And, of course, those details should be coming next week when the President announces his budget. So what we're doing today is a bit of a preview. I think you'll find it's an indication that there are good things to come for this agency. And if we're right, it's good things to come for all of humanity. And so I'm going to turn it over to Jim Free, our Associate Administrator, and he's going to get into the details. Thank you very much, sir, and good afternoon. I'm really excited to share the, the update with you today, which really continues our reflection on our long-term goal to establish that regular cadence of landing humans on the moon. And you'll hear from Lisa Watson Morgan here in a moment who represent the great work of our team to get us here. And those of you that have been following you know that our plan was always to return humans to the moon as soon as possible. And we're doing that with SpaceX on Artemis 3, still targeting 2025 for that landing. And SpaceX continues to make good progress towards that mission. But beyond Artemis 3, we want to increase the healthy competition and advance our lunar capabilities to support more science, more exploration, and an emerging lunar marketplace. We are seeing great success in low Earth orbit using a services model, and we have an early opportunity to help American companies become some of the first service providers on the moon. And the best way to reach flexibility and resiliency that we need is through competition and redundancy. That's why we're planning to partner with another company for sustaining lunar lander development and demonstration, as well as offering SpaceX the opportunity to conduct similar work in a parallel procurement. That means potentially two companies developing sustaining lander capabilities and two missions landing astronauts on the moon under the criteria we plan to use for the next decade of Artemis crewed missions, in addition to the first landing all before we ask for recurring services. This means that when we do start asking for those services, we'll have a stronger market, a more capable pool of potential providers, and a more competitive procurement. Through a robust architecture, this vision promotes access through redundant services, lower costs through competition, and support for the growing space economy on Earth through diverse contributions. And what we're laying out here today is an incremental buildup toward both more advanced lander capabilities and landing services. Artemis is a complex campaign with many exciting milestones ahead of us. Some of you saw just last week Artemis 1 rolling out to the pad for wet dress rehearsal, truly an incredible moment uh, as we head towards uh, launch in the near future. Hardware for Artemis 2 and 3 is being built right now. Some of it delivered down to Kennedy in the form of the, the uh, European service module, the, the uh, crew module, great work going on at, at Michoud to work on SLS. The next couple of years will also be major for Gateway. Components for the power and propulsion element and habitation and logistics outposts are underway and we'll start integrate, integration and testing of those next year. We're also making great progress with our critical international partners who will be providing additional gateway elements, the European Space Agency, 12 countries in Europe, plus Canada, are currently involved in design and construction of the gateway, as well as 17 states across the U.S. Artemis surface spacesuits are moving towards the service, services model, too, and we are planning to announce that soon as well. Our next area of focus on the moon will be surface mobility and habitation, but our vision goes beyond the moon. And everything we design, build, 
or procure for Artemis is done with the lens from Mars. But we're here today about the human landing system from the moon, so let's turn it over to Lisa Watson-Morgan now. Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Jim, and, and, and I'll tell you, as, as the program manager for the human landing system, it is such an honor to be part of the NASA team, and we're definitely going back to the moon, as you um, alluded to, and we're, you know, we're not going alone. We're going in a way that, that represents government, industry, you know, and international partners. So it's a great global effort. And, and we know that the work we're doing today and working through these procurements and, and getting to a second provider and still continuing the work with our current um, contract for our near-term mission with SpaceX, all of this work will help to write new chapters in history. And for that, we are so excited. And so the human landing system will take astronauts to the lunar surface as part of Artemis III in just a few short years. I mean, I really can't believe that it's almost here. Um, HLS has been busy. Uh, just, you know, last year, like you mentioned, uh, we awarded what we call Appendix H, Option A, and that work was, was awarded to SpaceX, and that's one uncrewed and one crewed demonstration mission to the moon, and that work is going great. We're also making excellent progress on what we're calling Appendix N. And that is work that uh, HLS awarded to five U.S. American companies to further inform and mature our sustaining requirements uh, in anticipation of, of this development activity that we're announcing today. And we've, we've also been very busy uh, these last few months in preparing how we are going to purchase these future missions, because that's really key to our future. We, we've talked about the sustaining lunar development in the past, and today we're excited to tell you about our new approach and this procurement strategy. Our objective is the same, but our approach has definitely improved. We're separating sustainable lander development and demonstration missions from our transportation services, which will create competition and help us expedite the award for the sustainable lander development. And we did much of this uh, through listening to industry. We acquired a lot of industry feedback because, as we mentioned, we're not going at this alone. We need U.S. industry to help NASA and our subject matter experts to make this program successful. So our updated strategy bolsters industry readiness and competition for our future lunar transport and promotes a resilient plan for establishing a long-term presence under Artemis with regular crewed lunar landings. So our strategy allows NASA partner to partner with industry to develop that second sustainable lander capability, including a crewed demonstration landing, increasing the competitive pool of capable providers ahead of our uh, upcoming and future lunar transportation services for our Artemis astronauts, which is also very key. So NASA is definitely committed to maintaining a flexible and resilient uh, lunar exploration plan that will allow for for future commercial partnerships as new capabilities come on um, and as funding permits. And again, we've been working with industry through Appendix N and through Appendix H, Option A, and even before that with an instrument we called Appendix E. So this has been a long time coming, and we've learned so much from all of those other acquisitions, and we're putting those lessons into this one. So we plan to release a draft request for proposals for sustaining lunar development at the end of this month and then further inform industry, hold industry days the first week of April to where we get additional feedback from them on, on what we've released. And once we do that, then later in the spring, we'll release a final RFP request for proposals for this sustaining lunar development. It's going to be open to all of industry, except for SpaceX, but they'll have the opportunity to negotiate the same sustaining lunar development work under what we're calling Option B of its existing Appendix H uh, contract. 
Option B was included within the original Appendix H acquisition and will have requirements that mirror this sustaining lunar development, this newer acquisition that we're talking about today. The Artemis III mission is unaffected by this change and it's still on target for no earlier than 2025. Ultimately, NASA is working towards reliable and economic solutions to meet our goals and our collaborative relationships are definitely vital to the future of space exploration. As we look to land Americans back on the moon for the first time in over 50 years, our innovative, innovative astronaut moon landers will be a hallmark in space exploration history. And as I mentioned earlier, we're definitely going to be writing uh, just new chapters in history. We're just going to be uh, forging the path. And we're doing all of this with industry. We're doing this with, uh, with NASA's subject matter experts, with the, the vision that Apollo started, with knowing where we're going. Uh, it's going to be so exciting. And, and um, I, I, it's been a long time coming to get this uh, next procurement started. We're so excited that the moon is just the the foreground, if you will, as we are preparing uh, for deeper, NASA's preparing for deeper space exploration missions to Mars. And thank you. Well, preparations towards putting uh, your base on the moon. On FM, online, and on TuneIn, 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. Sometimes it pays dividends if you trawl through old scientific data. Astronomers using archival data from NASA's Hubble Space Telescope found evidence of water vapor in the thin atmosphere of Jupiter's moon, Ganymede. Ganymede is the largest moon in our solar system, larger than Mercury and Pluto, and three-quarters the size of Mars. It's an ice-covered world that may hold more water than all of Earth's oceans combined. But... Unlike Earth, Ganymede's oceans are below its 100-mile-thick icy crust. Ultraviolet images taken in 1998 and 2010 using Hubble's Space Telescope Imaging Spectrograph revealed bands of charged particles at Ganymede similar to Earth's polar auroral ovals, the regions that give us our northern and southern lights, but the two observations revealed differences in Ganymede's auroral bands over time. The researchers thought these differences were due to the presence of atomic oxygen, or single oxygen atoms, in Ganymede's atmosphere. Atomic oxygen affects one of the wavelengths of ultraviolet light the scientists were looking at. In 2018, researchers used Hubble's Cosmic Origin Spectrograph to measure the amount of atomic oxygen in Ganymede's atmosphere. They compared the 1998, 2010, and 2018 data. To their surprise, the 2018 data revealed hardly any atomic oxygen in Ganymede's atmosphere. There had to be another explanation for the differences in the aurora images. Ganymede's surface temperature varies widely throughout the day, and around noon, near its equator, it may get warm enough for surface ice to release water molecules. Instead of melting and forming liquid water, the icy surface warms and changes from a solid directly to a gas, a process called sublimation. Looking back at the original images, the team discovered the differences they observed in Ganymede's auroral bands are related to where water vapor would be expected in the moon's atmosphere. Understanding the Jovian system and unraveling its history, from its origins to the possible emergence of habitable environments, will provide us with a better understanding of how gas giant planets and their satellites form and evolve. Along with learning more about Jupiter and its mysterious moon Ganymede, this exciting new discovery has brought us closer to understanding our own place in the universe. Earth below us, drifting, Falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. Welcome to episode 35 of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at our home planet. Now, for our next story, don't bother looking at the website of the Australian Space Agency. It's just not there, but we've got this from... Uh, Innovations Australia, and uh, under the headline, NASA partners with Australian Space Agency on Earth Observation, they say, 
NASA will partner with the Australian Space Agency on Earth observation following Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's $1.2 billion funding of the Australian National Space Mission. The Australian Space Agency and NASA signed a joint statement of intent today and they did this at a conference in um, Colorado. In last week's budget, the federal government set aside $1.16 billion over 15 years for the Earth Observation Mission. The first phase of the National Space Mission involves the design, construction and operation of four satellites. Potential areas of cooperation were highlighted in the statement. Included, and that included, um, the potential for the Australian satellites to assist NASA's Climate Absolute Radiance and Refractivity Observatory Pathfinder, which is otherwise known as Clario PF, uh, and to help uh, provide a better understanding of the Earth's climate system, the mission will take measurements of reflected light. Also included in the statement was an acknowledgement that future space collaboration would also involve the United States Geological Survey and Geoscience Australia. Also signed was a deal between Gilmore Space Technologies and LatConnect60 to launch microsatellites in a planned high-resolution hyperspectral imaging constellation. The eight-satellite constellation will be owned and operated by Perth-based LatConnect60. Gilmore Space will develop the first 100-kilogram Hypersite 60 satellite on its G-class satellite bus and launch it in the fourth quarter of 2024 using Gilmore's Eris rocket from the Bowen Orbital Spaceport in Queensland. So that's just hot off the press. An agreement signed between NASA and the Australian Space Agency. Well now... Sea level rise and flooding. Well, John Englander is the executive director of the Caribbean Centre for Rising Seas. And uh, he has these comments about sea level rise. Next, our guest speaker, John Englander, will talk about rising waters for time horizons. John Englander is the executive director of the Caribbean Centre for Rising Seas. He's also an oceanographer climate consultant, and author. His most recent book is titled Moving to Higher Ground, Rising Sea Level, and the Path Forward. I want to talk about rising waters, which is, of course, one of the big risks that we're all concerned about these days. I want to talk to you about it from a slightly different perspective of four different time horizons. When we accumulate data, and particularly the kind of precise data that NASA and uh, many of the cooperating organizations involved here use, we're really doing it to get knowledge. And of course, the ultimate uh, purpose of that is to add to public safety. In the sense of flooding, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that we're both dealing with short-term flood events and risks, but also long-term designs because the world's changing rather quickly. Coastal flooding is often described as a problem, but I would suggest respectfully that we really need to think of it as six or seven different problems. There's storms, which is the obvious uh, thing like a hurricane or typhoons in the Pacific. And storms bring waves and storm surge, which gets up inside of canals and waterways and amplifies, but that's all weather driven. Then apart from storms, there's just heavy rainfall. And as the oceans warm, we're getting heavier rainfall, dramatically so in many places, which seems counterintuitive because we're also getting more drought, but those things go together in a warming world. Rainfall, which might be, let's say, um, 20 some centimeters in a, in a period of time, rainfall can also go, run downhill 
to a lower spot. It could be a lower street. It could be down a ravine, a valley, down a, a stream going into a river. Runoff multiplies rainfall. And so when we think about flood water heights, we need to think about storms as being one format or vector. Increasing rainfall is another. And then topography and uh, valleys and, and waterways will turn that into runoff at a multiplied value to rain. Then there's tides. We're all familiar with tides moving up and down almost twice a day due to the pull of the moon largely. We know that if new moons or full moons, that tides are even higher. And more and more often, there's awareness that the lunar tide cycle, an 18.6 year cycle, which adds or subtracts to tides to the level of about six centimeters, about two and a half inches on a regular pattern going up and down over 19 years or more specifically 18.6 years. And that's manifest these days as what are often called um, sunny day flood events or king tides. The tides aren't really changing, but the tides are appearing to be higher at peaks because sea levels rising. And we tend to confuse these things because we, many people often use similar words to describe different aspects of flooding. But rising sea level is different because it's like a drip filling the bucket. It's happening very slowly. And we really only notice it during those peak high tides, which are getting higher over the kind of um, mysterious cycles of tides, which follow the, again, the moons and the 18.6 year tide cycle. So all of those five flood factors have different magnitudes, different uh, recovery times, and we'll talk about them in a second. And then there's coastal erosion. And often flooding is confused in terms of terminology with erosion. I said that there are six or seven kinds of flooding, and it's useful to have more specific words like these storms, rain, runoff, tides, sea level rise, and erosion. And another one that some of you may be aware of is tsunamis. And in fact, more and more places are posting tsunami warning signs for evacuation or uh, enhancing the tsunami warning system. Tsunamis would be an entirely different kind of flooding along with earthquakes because they're typically driven by earthquakes and um, are really outside the format of these normal five flood factors plus coastal erosion. So just that's from terminology, both uh, to understand things better, storms are well known and well understood. We're familiar with storms, but we're also seeing these king tides and it's happening more and more where it's flooding the streets. And that street's been there for over a hundred years at that elevation. And it has not had subsidence or uplift. In other words, the level of that street has stayed fundamentally unchanged in relation to global sea level. But they're having a new problem, which is that at king tides or extreme high tides, the water's breaking over the seawall and causing difficulty, salt water, of course. And it's not that the tides are getting higher, it's that sea level globally is rising and that manifests as higher high tides. So this is just to support my case that we've got to be a little more specific than to talk about flooding because flooding comes from different things. When I talk about four time horizons to think of flooding, I'd like to suggest these. Geologic time, what scientists call the paleo record, is perhaps 10,000 years or longer thousands of years. The observational record starts in 1850, going back to tide gauges, and then in 1993 in the more sophisticated satellite record and remote sensing. Then the next time period we need to think about is today and tomorrow, in quotes. And of course, that's the great concern of prediction of what will flooding be in the next few hours when a storm is approaching, or as sea level and other flooding brings the water higher. What do we need to plan for? And that can be a forecast period of three hours, 30 days, or 30 years, um, which gets us to the fourth category. For planning and projection purpose, it's important to think about 30 to 100 years 
because that's the design life of buildings and infrastructure. So I think you can see that all four of these time horizons, geologic time is largely irrelevant, except to give us some understanding about what could happen for the future. Then there's the observational record going back 170 years roughly, where we can really look at realistic, accurate measurements, which have gotten better. We use that information to project what's gonna happen during the next storm event or during the lifespan of a building and what do we need to design for and engineer for, which gets us into the planning and projection horizon. If we look at Florida, it actually proves geologically just how dramatic this change is. We all know the shape of Florida today. 20,000 years ago, Florida was 120 some meters lower, sea level was lower, meaning that Florida was twice the size because the, particularly the Western bank was exposed. But 120,000 years ago in geologic history, in the paleo record, sea level was to about seven meters higher. And the exposed land area of Florida was about half the present. So Florida is just is a good demonstration, although this happened all over the world. To share the concept of sea level change over geologic time. This is since the last ice age about 22,000 years ago when the ice sheets were at a maximum and sea level was at a minimum. It was 120 meters below today. And sea level rose as the ice sheets melted, not in some straight line, not even in some smooth curve line. There were some inflection points or changes of slope. And then sea level got to the present level about 6,000 years ago, which happens to be the record of human civilization, more or less, which is why we tend to have trouble believing it will change greatly, because it's been fairly um, stable for a few thousand years. And we'll look at that more clearly in a moment. The other thing I would point out is that when sea level rose quickly, you could not predict what was about to happen based upon the recent past. Now, many of us believe that we're in that such an era again, that the recent past no longer predicts the near future. When sea level rose quickly 11,000 years ago, most recently, it rose at the rate of about five meters a century. That happened naturally. So it's an important um, reference point to realize that we really can get to, to a foot of sea level rise a decade, 30 centimeters for reference so sea level rose about 30 floors of a building that's 120 meters since the last ice age and if we melt all the remaining ice on the planet sea level would go up another 17 floors 88.3 southern fm the sounds of the bayside The Yes Space Show, where sea level rise and flooding is the topic. John Englander is the speaker. And we can see that sea level or global temperature has moved up and down in a fairly regular pattern. We're at a peak of the normal pattern. The difference or the um, period between the typical global warming or ice age patterns is 100,000 years. That's a natural cycle. We also notice that carbon dioxide move in sync. And the problem is that um, whereas historically it was uh, the Milankovitch cycle, which is a variation of energy we receive from the sun based upon the uh, elliptical orbit, the wobble and the tilt of the earth, which combined into something called the Milankovitch cycle first documented in 1938 by Milutin Milankovitch. And that explains the cause of the ice ages, the up and down variation. It's, it's like a giant summer and winter. Well, so that heating and cooling of five degrees Celsius from an ice age to now was happening at a fairly regular period of about 100,000 years. The warming takes about 20,000 years and the cooling about 80,000 years. And it's reasonable to assume that being at a fairly high spot in the normal cycle here, that we probably were turning the corner and would have been entering the cooling phase of 80,000 years to the next ice age. But 
carbon dioxide shows us the problem because its normal range was 180 to 280 parts per million, and it's now at about 415 parts per million and moving straight up. Now, what's just without getting technical here, when the planet warms, the oceans release carbon dioxide. So historically, it was the Milankovitch cycle, this orbital variation that changes the amount of heat energy we get, effectively a giant summer and winter every 100,000 years. When the oceans warm, they release carbon dioxide, and when the oceans cool, they absorb carbon dioxide. So the temperature basically drove carbon dioxide level going back thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, actually. But now a different phenomenon has taken over because it was proven in 1859 that carbon dioxide trapped heat. And as we've changed the CO2 level of the atmosphere quite unnaturally by human impact, that extra heat trapped in the atmosphere is warming the oceans. So they go together over thousands of years, centuries even, but there's a lag time. And either one can move, the other will follow, given centuries or millennia for adjustment. hope that was clear. Now let's get to the data. If we look since 1850, which is the beginning of the tide gauge database, basically, within reasonably good accuracy, we can get a picture of global sea level rise from the hundreds of tide gauges around the world that were basically pulled into a network. But then in recent times, we've got satellite data, which you're far more expert in than I, many of you. And if we take that in a little more detail, we just hone in on the satellite record. We can see that since it began in 1993 with TOPEX, that the record was about one and a half millimeters a year. If we look at the, since the year 2000, the rate is about 3.2 millimeters a year. It's dramatically increasing, more than doubling. And if we look at the last decade, we're approaching five millimeters a year in the last couple of years, and maybe too short a window of time to get um, a, a definitive number. But the point is this is accelerating. And as we've learned from the pandemic, it's not so much the number, it's the potential for abrupt change in rate and um, either geometric growth or even exponential growth that will surprise us. And that's the case with sea level rise. Now, the problem with sea level ultimately is the amount of ice on land. You probably know this, but the ice on land is really in Greenland and Antarctica. 98% of potential sea level rise is in those two places. The rest is in glaciers from Alaska to the Alps, um, but really for practical purposes, it's all in Antarctica and Greenland, and it's about one-eighth in Greenland and uh, seven-eighths in Antarctica. Greenland's where it's melting fastest. The Arctic does have a, a, the Arctic amplification where more of the heat is going into the northern hemisphere and showing up around the northern region. We think of the melting Arctic, and whether it be the plight of the polar bear and their habitat, or just the fact of more icebergs and, and sea ice, as the world warms and this polar ice cap disappears, it goes from bright white to dark blue ocean. As that happens, it's one of those feedback loops because the darker water absorbs more heat, does not reflect like the white ice. But I would also point out a point of confusion. Floating ice, whether it be sea ice or an iceberg, does not affect sea level. Like ice cubes in a glass, and you can run this experiment at home, ice cubes like icebergs are about 10% above the surface. If you mark the level of liquid in the glass with floating ice cubes and let the ice melt, the level of liquid won't change. That's because just before ice or water freezes, it expands slightly and becomes less dense. So as it melts, it actually compacts a little bit and takes up less space. And that's why icebergs or ice cubes stick out of the water about 10%. But as they melt, they have no, level, no effect on the level of liquid. It's the glaciers on land that we need to be concerned about. As these glaciers move toward the sea and break off and calve into new icebergs, that's like adding a new ice cube to the glass. 
that will cause the level of liquid to rise. Also, meltwater from the ice on land melting as the world gets warmer will add to the level of liquid, as you can easily imagine. The third phenomenon that adds to global sea level is land moving up or down, subsidence or uplift. There are many places where land is subsiding, and there are some places where land is uplifting. And that will have an effect to, um, uh, to distort the picture of sea level from those vantage points. So in other words, if sea level was rising uh, 10 inches in the last century, but if some place had the land sinking 30 inches, like New Orleans, for example, roughly, it would appear that sea level, when viewed from New Orleans, had risen 40 inches. The 10 inches of global sea level rise plus the 30 inches that the land had, had sunk. I hope that makes sense. So what about the future? I mean, data to understanding to lessons for our world in a practical standpoint is I think what we're most all concerned about. If we look out 30 years and 100 years within the design life of buildings and infrastructure and even communities, we have to think different because most data that we're concerned about from weather forecasts to even longer term predictions going out days or up to three weeks, four weeks for long term weather forecasts are really important for imminent flooding. But they're not going to tell us anything about sea level rise. Because sea level is rising at that rate of about four or five millimeters a year. When we think about flooding like what happened in Puerto Rico or actually we could look at any storm event all over the world. Of course, we're not worried about a quarter of an inch. We're worried about inches, feet, or meters, I should say. And in this new era of a warming world, and most of you will be aware that back on August 9th, um, not too long ago, that the new IPCC report came out and kind of locked in the, the evidence and the forecast that the world is warming and it's accelerating, and we have very little time to slow it. And to some degree, regardless of we, what we do, many of the effects are already locked in. So we have to look at the effects of flooding and our ability to project in the near term for weather events. But we also need to start planning infrastructure and buildings that will last at least 30 years. That's a mortgage cycle in most places. And sea level is often mistakenly attributed to the problems today. Now again, sea level is only rising about a quarter of an inch a year. That rate may have tripled in the last 30 years. But the problem today isn't sea level rise. It manifests with the peak high tides. But we do need to plan for sea level rise, which now could be a meter or two higher this century, depending on how warm the planet is. So that gets us back to why I suggest that we have to break flooding into different kinds of flooding and make sure that when we're combining water levels in the near term to predict a flood that might happen tomorrow or next week with a storm approaching, we're characterizing it properly because we're barely seeing the effects of sea level so far. But we know from the paleo record, that geologic data, that sea level does change hundreds of feet vertically, which surprises most people to learn, but it's in the geologic textbooks for 100 years, the ice ages. And it goes along with the simplicity of the ice ages. The planet has had natural heating and cooling cycles, but now we're warming it as the IPCC shows. And as we look to make com communities safer and plan for the future, we have to think about these different flood factors. And the geologic scale to get clarity, the observational record to see what's happening, looking at the confluence of near-term data to say what could happen in the next three hours or three days with storms and the need to evacuate. But none of those things will really show us what, how much sea level is going to rise in the next 30 years or by the year 2100. But I like 30 years. It gets us to mid-century and it is a mortgage cycle. So Gathering data is extremely important. Applying it to flood projections is what's vital to people. And we just need to be clear 
which kind of flooding we're talking about, the storms, the rain, the runoff, the extreme tides, and the slowly accumulating sea level rise. From data to knowledge to safety. We don't have any choice about rising with the tide. The ocean doesn't care what our day-to-day problems are of budgets, architecture, emergency evacuations. But for our generation and future generations, we do need to improve the data, the understanding, and the takeaway lessons so that we design communities that are viable and can thrive in the future. Thank you. On the Space Show, that was John Englander, the Executive Director of the Caribbean Centre for Rising Seas. And uh, that has been an episode of our Planet Earth series. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless. Well, it's time for us to uh, head out of here and uh, hand over to Purple Haze. This has been The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. And you can find us at space.asn.au. So that's space.asn.au to find out more about the Space Association. (laughs) 